with me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, our text is verses 5 through 14, but I will start reading in verse 1 to remind you of the context. This is God's holy word. It has no errors in the original language, languages in which it was given, and it remains to us the authoritative word of God in faithful translations like the one from which I'm about to read. And uh, it has everything that we need for life and godliness. Give it your reverent attention as I read it to you. Matthew 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than having two hands and two feet to be cast into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into the fiery hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. Skipping to verse 12. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep, and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? And if it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. Thus it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray together. O Lord, we thank you that your word does endure forever. We thank you that it is always sure, it is always right and true and needful, uh, regardless of where we are reading, where we are preaching. 
But Lord, we are here in Matthew 18. Uh, Would you, and you have providentially brought us to this verse today, would you please use this passage uh, and its exposition by me uh, to bless your people, to strengthen them in their battle against indwelling sin and the world and the devil. And would you please use this time, Lord, to bring honor uh, to your name uh, and to cause your glory to be reflected in our response uh, to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Kids, have you ever um, picked up a piece of fruit, let's say an apple or a banana, I'm thinking of those in particular, Um, you picked up a piece of fruit from somewhere, maybe it was off the counter or uh, something, and uh, you wanted to eat it, you wanted to eat that piece of fruit, and after picking it up, discovered that it had a rotten spot in it. Now, it's easier to see rotten spots in apples on the outside because it usually shows up on the outside as a brown spot than it does in, the, in a banana. Uh, sometimes the banana is, is, is bruised on the inside. It's not really rotten, but it kind of looks rotten. Um, but uh, it's harder to see with a banana. But I'm sure you've had that experience where you picked up something that you were going to eat and there was a bad spot in it. Now, if your parents are like my parents used to be when I was growing up, uh, they would tell you or did tell you just cut that spot out of the knife, out of the apple with a knife and eat the good part of the apple. Don't waste the apple and throw it away. Cut out the bad spot. Or, or with a banana if it was in a, was in a banana. That's what my parents told me. Maybe your parents have told you as much on occasions when you've had a piece of fruit that was, uh, had a, had a little rotten spot in it. Well, <clears throat> Just like there are rotten spots in fruit that need to be removed from it in order to preserve the fruit, the rest of the fruit, and for it to be good uh, to use, the same actually is sort of true of you and me spiritually. There are, for lack of a better way of putting it, rotten things in us, rotten spots in each one of us, in our hearts, even as Christians, um, that need to be removed from us, and that we need to be working to remove from us with the help of God. And this passage, among other things, speaks to that truth, speaks of the importance of being serious about rooting out and getting rid of rotten things, spiritual things, inside of us, thoughts, attitudes, behaviors. And we're going to talk more about that Uh, as we work our way through this passage. You recall uh, that Jesus uh, and his disciples have just gathered together. The the disciples were um, off by themselves uh, having a conversation, a rather embarrassing conversation, about which one of them was going to hold the highest position of honor uh, in the Jesus coming messianic uh, kingdom that he was going to set up. And they believed he was... Uh, going to set up his kingdom. They believed he was the Messiah. And they were trying to figure out which one of them was going to have the most privileged spot in that kingdom, other than Jesus. And they come to Jesus, 
uh, and meet up with him after they had this conversation. Jesus, they probably weren't going to tell him what they were talking about. Jesus knows, because he's God, what they were talking about. And he says, what was it you were talking about? Just a little uh, a little while ago, we learned that from uh, Mark's account. I think it's Mark's account. Uh, might be Luke's. I think it's Mark's. At any rate, he does ask that, and they kind of embarrassed, uh, you know, hold off for a moment, and then finally they blurt out this question because they know he knows. They say, "Who who of us is going to be the greatest in your kingdom, Jesus?" Um, and that is the. And then, as we saw last week, Jesus uh, takes this child to himself and proceeds to begin instructing them. Um, and he basically says, if you, if you continue in this attitude of self-righteousness and arrogance and uh, self-importance that you have, you're not going to get into the kingdom at all, gentlemen. And that's essentially what he, uh, we looked at last week in the uh, first uh, four verses of this chapter. Uh, Jesus is continuing that conversation now. I, I, cut, uh, I cut the passage off and just dealt with the first four verses last week. But um, the conversation now continues. It's actually not a conversation. Jesus is instructing them uh, uh, about the, the problem of their hearts. And that brings us to the section that we're now looking at today, verses 5 and following. So, this brings us to the, the two major things, points that uh, I wish to draw and are evident in this passage. They are as follows. First of all, you, as a believer, and of course I'm assuming by saying that I'm talking just to the believers, not to any unbelievers that might be present today. But you, if you're a believer here today, you as a believer are capable of being spiritually harmed by forces within and without. And we'll talk about that and look at uh, that. That's found basically in verses uh, 5 through 9 of our passage. And secondly, this passage teaches us that you as a believer must take great care to avoid causing spiritual harm. So you are capable of being spiritually harmed and you must take great care to avoid causing spiritual harm. The two points that I, um, uh, headings of the, uh, in this passage. So first let's look at the first point, which is found in the first uh, uh, verses 5 through 9, and that is that we as Christians are capable of being spiritually harmed even though we are Christians and have the Spirit of God dwelling in us, and are forgiven and loved and, and heaven-bound. We are still capable of being damaged or wounded spiritually as God's children. Of being, to use language that is found in this passage, spiritually tripped up by what uh, is, uh, the, word, uh, the Greek word is sometimes translated, and it is here, stumbling blocks. Things that cause you to stumble spiritually. What it means to be a cause of stumbling or a stumbling block is evident from the Greek word uh, that I just uh, alluded to a moment ago. It is translated in the New American Standard as stumbling block. Uh, Elsewhere it might be found as obstacle. Uh, The various ways that it is uh, translated in different uh, versions uh, or translations, rather. But the Greek word carries with it the idea of a stone or some other obstacle 
which is in a person's way, in the way in which he is walking in, in that person's way, and over which that person could very well trip and fall. That's the idea commuted by the word. The Greek word is um, uh, skandalon, which is where we get the word scandal from, actually, the English word scandal. And when that word, that Greek word, is used figuratively, figuratively of a person, as it is here in our uh, text this morning, it refers to someone, a person whose sinful attitudes, words, or actions have the effect of spiritually tripping up another person by successfully enticing that other person to themselves sin against God. And as a result of that person, that other person's committal of that sin or sins to which he has been enticed by the stumbling block, that person is spiritually damaged in the process. So, who does Jesus represent as a victim of stumbling blocks here in this passage? Well, I've already kind of indicated as much. Uh, But you recall the context here. The conversation started with, who is the greatest? And they mean, who amongst us is the greatest in the coming kingdom, your coming kingdom? And in order to teach them their need for much greater humility and understanding of who they really are, apart from the grace of God, that is nothing, Uh, He calls this little child uh, to him uh, and to stand before them. And Jesus sets this child before his disciples on this occasion to represent uh, the spiritual children or little ones of whom Jesus speaks in verses 3 and 4 and then in verses 6, 10, and 14. He he uses the word children uh, in verse uh, in verse three and child in verse four, and then he uses the words little ones in, as I said, verses six, ten, and fourteen. All of those um, terms that he's using there are are describing spiritual children that this physical child that he's holding in front of him and in front of the disciples represents. He represents. Spiritual children that he now is going to be talking about. And the spiritual children are the ones who are potential victims of stumbling blocks. Other people who sin against God and entice uh, the God's little ones, his spiritual children, to themselves sin against uh, the Lord and hurt themselves. These spiritual children are, of course, those who have come to acknowledge uh, and accept, and we saw this in last week's uh, sermon as I looked at verses 1 through 4, spiritual children are those who have come to acknowledge and accept their childlike lowliness, their childlike insignificance, their childlike helplessness. In order to come to Christ, one must be humbled, and God does that humbling. But that humbling involves a, an acceptance of, I am nothing. I am not worthy of God's kindness or grace. I am worthy of hell. Uh, and a person has to come to grips with that before he can understand his need for Christ and, by the grace of God, flee to Jesus in faith. And so, these little ones are 
Christians. He even says as much in verse 6. He says, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me. Right? So you see, the little one is the believer. The child is a believer here, now that Jesus has in mind. He has believers in mind. Those who are trusting Jesus alone to rescue them from God's judicial wrath and to be the Lord of their life or King of their life. They are genuine Christians, these little ones, with varying levels of spiritual maturity. Various places in their spiritual life, uh, spiritual uh, journey, if you will. Now, Jesus may well... uh, can't be too dogmatic about this, but I, I lean this way. Jesus may well be thinking especially of believers who are particularly weak, who are young in the faith and spiritually vulnerable. I think that's probably who he has most in mind, I'll put it that way. But that, what, it, what, is saying, what he's saying here can apply to a Christian of any spiritual uh, age, any level of spiritual maturity. Maturity, but particularly, I think he's he's thinking of uh, the more vulnerable, uh, younger Christian or less mature Christian. And while it may be such spiritual babes that he has at the forefront of his mind, again, the possibility of of spiritually stumbling is a real one for all of us here, regardless of how long we've been uh, Christians. So, from whence do these enticements to sin come from? They can come from different places, as the text makes clear. First of all, they can come from outside of the Christian himself. Uh, they can come, as we learn in verse 7, from uh, those who are, inhabit the world at large. Probably a reference here to, uh, uh, which would certainly include at least, unbelievers. Stumbling blocks can be presented to us from the unbelieving world. Verse 7, woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. So it certainly includes unbelievers there. But it can also include professing Christians. Professing Christians, and I use the word professing intentionally, uh, who may well not be true Christians. Um, Professing Christians can also be sources of stumbling to you and me as Christians. Verse 10, "See see that you do not despise you, and he's talking again to the disciples, remember, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. So he's warning them, don't you be a stumbling block. Don't you be a stumbling block to one of my people, one of my children, who love me and who have trusted in, in, uh, in my son. So, it's clear that enticements can come from without, from people around us, believers and unbelievers alike. But it's also true that enticements to sin, causes of stumbling, uh, enticements to sin and unbelief, can also come from within the Christian. And verses 8 and 9 make this point. I'll read that here in a few moments. But suffice it to say, uh, that, uh, those verses again in a few moments, but suffice it to say, Paul addresses this and makes this point eloquently about himself and by implication about all of us uh, who are Christians in Romans chapter 7, that well-known passage uh, where Paul speaks uh, of his Christian life, by the way, not 
of his life before he was a non-Christian. There are some that want to say that, well, this Paul was talking about before he became a Christian. That's nonsense. Well, it's not quite nonsense, but it's it's not. Uh, the weight of the evidence points to the fact that Paul is pointing to his Christian life, that as he is writing this, and the present tense, you'll see as I read it, makes the point, he is talking about himself now as he's penning Romans. So here's what he says, starting in verse 14. I'll read through to the end of the, the chapter. But notice the, the, the source of, 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 uh, of sin and temptation uh, of which Paul speaks, starting in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am, and notice the uh, present tense, I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. But that which I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not wish to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. Read, old man. For the, wishing of the, for the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wish, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. But if I am doing the very thing that I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin, there it is again, which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do the good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? And then he says that wonderful line, Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see, the believer has a a portion of him, and Paul represents it as, as, a, as a, something outside of himself, but it's not really, it's something within him. It's the old man. It's the remnant of sin, that principle, that principle that he mentions there in verse 21, the principle that evil is present in me, that evil principle that still, while he is a defeated foe, uh, he is still waging guerrilla warfare against me and against the Holy Spirit who is in me. And that's true of all of us, folks. And so, part of us, the, the old man, still entices, still tries to lure the, the godly uh, new self um, back into the mire. And I don't need to convince you folks of this. You know your own life and your own heart. You know this is true by your own experience, just like I do. So, we need to be on the lookout for potential sources of spiritual harm to us and do whatever we can to avoid those sources or to uh, repudiate those potential sources or causes of spiritual stumbling. And they would include things from without. So that would include who we spend our time with, acquaintances, even longtime friends, perhaps. Uh, they include uh, situations where 
uh, things going on in the world and people that we might encounter or uh, people's uh, thinking that we might encounter in the world around us um, that would ca- could trip us up spiritually. We need to avoid those situations as much as is practically possible. And it could also it also means avoiding thought patterns. It avoids uh, certain states of mind. And again, I think you adults especially know what I'm talking about. We get into thought patterns that are unhealthy. Uh, whether it be that of unbelief, or that of self-pity, or that of, um, of uh, 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 inordinate self-love, wanting what we want when we want it, uh, feeling sorry for ourselves, that kind of thing. These patterns, we need, to, we need to catch them and go, this leads to a bad place if I keep going. Lord, help me to get out of this. I need help. So we need to identify these adversaries, uh, if you will, these potential stumbling blocks around us and within us, and call them out. Well, okay. Call them out in our own heads. So, you as a believer, and I as a believer, all of us are capable of being spiritually harmed by forces without and forces within. But this text also goes on to make the point that you and I as believers must and can take great care to avoid causing spiritual harm. That is, to avoid becoming ourselves a cause of spiritual stumbling, either to ourselves or to another Christian who is a child of God. First of all, we need to take great care to avoid causing, um, uh, avoid being a cause of spiritual stumbling to ourselves. Sin, you see, is so spiritually damaging, so spiritually dangerous, that any inclination within your heart and mine to engage in some sin that part of us wants to engage, wants to engage in, is, is attracted to, that sin or that, that inclination to sin must be radically dealt with. Radically dealt with. And here's where I'm going to read to you verses 8 and 9 of our passage. Jesus said, if your hand... Remember, he's talking to the disciples. Professing Christians, and all but one of them were, or uh, became so. If they weren't already, and they probably were already. And if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet to be cast, than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the eternal fire. And then he says the same about the If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you for the same reason. Now, our Lord is not advocating self-mutilation here. Although the early church father Origen thought he was and he had himself castrated in order to subdue his lusts. I'm not advising any kind of self-mutilation, and nor is the Lord himself. What is going on here is, this is hyperbolic language that Jesus is using, intended to emphasize the determination that Christians must exhibit in their fight against indwelling inclinations to sin. So what Jesus is essentially saying here 
uh, if I can reword it, in verses 8 and 9, he is saying to us, you need to get rid of whatever in your life is tempting you to sin against God, no matter what it costs you in the way of time or effort or sacrifice. You cannot play games with the inclination within you to sin, is what Jesus is saying. In words, rewording what he said there. So, for example, you and I, we should all seek to avoid conversations and company that tempt us to think along worldly lines, to think worldly thoughts, uh, or to adopt worldly attitudes or priorities. Perhaps especially on social media, I would add. I'm just thinking about my own life right now. <laughs> Certain things that... Uh, that tempt me to think worldly thoughts. Uh, I'll just give you a quick example. Is uh, if, I, if I spend too much time reading news, and most of you know I like in, in keeping up with what's going on in the world, um, it, it can, it, you know, politics can make you think that that's really ultimately important. Now, it is important on some level, what goes on in our country and who's in charge and what laws are being passed and what court decisions are being made. That's true. It is important to some degree, but... But you can get sucked into thinking that if you spend too much time worrying about who's the next, who's going to get to choose the next uh, uh, Supreme Court justice or what have you. That's maybe not the best example, but you get the idea. These are things that that when we when we uh, engross our thoughts in certain worldly conversations or uh, or company. Uh, we start thinking that way ourselves, maybe unconsciously, but we do, and we need to. We need to be careful. Also, we need to avoid uh, literature, for example, or again conversations that foster discontentment within our own heart with where God has us, or. Uh, conversations or literature that urge us to get ahead in life by figuratively climbing over the bodies of others. And and other such ungodly attitudes. We don't need to be reading, you know, um, spending undue time reading um, Psychology Today, for example, or uh, money-making magazines that uh, urge us, uh, here's how you can get rich quick. That's, that's kind of curious, and I'm sometimes curious what they say, but we got to be careful not to get sucked into that kind of thinking by exposing ourselves uh, to it uh, uh, inordinately, or perhaps at all. Also, uh, another example of uh, how we need to be serious and determined to... Um, to root out uh, these inclinations to sin in our life, uh, and this is perhaps the one is uh, we must certainly do. The others uh, we should do, but especially we should avoid 
um, suggestive or sexually charged movies or websites. Access, everybody has access in their hand to all sorts of garbage. And I would suggest if you're not using a content filter such as uh, Covenant Eyes on your computer, you ought to get it. Now, uh, but but the way to protect yourself from yourself, if I can put it that way, is not merely to flee from the evil around and within. Yes, we do need to flee when we see it coming. But the best way, the most important thing that you can do and that I can do to avoid becoming our own cause for stumbling is to have a heart that is deeply in love with and devoted to our God and Savior. That's what we need most. You and I are obliged. We are obliged, and it's a blessed obligation, but we are obliged. Children, you need to listen to this because it applies to you just as much as it does the adults. We are obliged to do everything in our power to cultivate a heart that loves God with all of our heart. Are you cultivating that kind of heart in your life? Are you doing what you need to do to cultivate a deeper love for and commitment to Jesus? How consistently are you talking to him? How consistently are you letting him talk to you through his word? How consistently are you memorizing his word, hiding it in with your in your heart so that you have it available to use when you don't have your Bible there? How consistently are you pondering and thinking about his love for you displayed so exquisitely on the cross where you should have been there and he is, or was, I should say. You see, these are the things we need to cultivate a heart of deeper love for him that will make it easier for us for us to say, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to have those attitudes or think those thoughts or say those things. You see, it takes away the allure. No, it'll never go away completely, this side of heaven. But it'll reduce the intensity of that enticement of those stumbling blocks, potential stumbling blocks, like nothing else will. Okay, so that's the need to take great care to avoid becoming a stumbling block to ourselves, but also, as believers, you and I must take great care to avoid causing spiritual harm to another Christian brother or sister. And we read it, uh, this is alluded to in verse 10. Let me read it. So in verses 8 and 9, he's been talking about yourself, and each of us individually, if your hand, so-and-so, your foot, if your eye. He says, do this. But then he says in verse 10, see that you do not despise, see that you do not despise one of these little ones, meaning a believer. Another believer. See that you don't despise another believer. In light of the immediate context here, 
the specific manner in which the professing believer, described here in verse 10, would despise one of Jesus' believing little ones, would be by causing that little one to stumble spiritually as a result of his, that is the stumbling blocks, sinful thoughts, words, or actions. That's what it means to despise in the context here. Being a stumbling block to somebody else. And in verse 5, Jesus says that the true believer, not just the mere professor, but the true believer can and will strive to do the opposite of despise another Christian by being a source of spiritual harm to him. He will, verse 5, receive one such child in Jesus' name and by doing so receive Jesus. What does he mean here by receiving uh, uh, a believer, another believer? Well, it means, I think quite clearly, that we lovingly welcome and accept this other person, whoever this other person might be, new Christian or not new Christian, as a brother and sister in Christ, as a fellow little one. And by implication, lovingly welcoming and accepting and receiving such a one, by implication that means that you will act toward him or her in a manner that is consistent with that welcoming attitude by doing everything in your power to avoid wounding this person by your own behavior or words or attitudes. This means that we have to take our brothers and sisters in Christ, into account in our lives when we are contemplating doing various things. We need to take our brothers and sisters, uh, especially uh, uh, the younger, but all, uh, the younger in the faith, but it means we need to take their well-being into account when we are considering giving in to some temptation to sin. Losing our cool in some conversation. Uh, saying something that is unwholesome. Um, Gossiping or listening to gossip. Belittling another person because they're not quite perfect. It also means not just taking the well-being of those who are around us in a given situation into account we're considering sinning, as well as a lot of other things we need to take into account, like the glory of God. But it also means taking into the spiritual well-being of those of us into account, uh, those of, uh, those around us into account, when we are considering exercising a Christian liberty, say, that we may be able to enjoy with a good conscience, but that somebody nearby might not be able to engage in in a good conscience, and by our doing it uh, carelessly around them cause them to do the same behavior in a sinful way. You don't drink a beer or a glass of wine around somebody who has struggled recently with alcohol abuse. You don't do it. It's sinful to do so, even though you can do it just fine if he wasn't there without any sin at all. So why do we need to avoid 
being the cause of spiritual harm to ourselves. Let's take ourselves, and then we'll why we need to avoid the same thing with respect to another Christian. But first of all, why do we need to take uh, avoid being a cause of spiritual harm to ourselves? Well, because if you and I unceasingly entertain attitudes and speak forth words and or engage in behaviors that spiritually wound us, that are spiritually detrimental to our souls, we will end up spending eternity in hell, Jesus says in verses 8 and 9. Now, wait a minute. Why would, you, why would we spend up eternity in hell? Wait, I mean, if I'm a believer, um, I'm not going to go to hell. Yeah, that's true, if you're a believer. But you will go to hell if you unceasingly, that's the key word there, entertain thoughts and speak words and engage in actions that are spiritually damaging to you, you will end up there because by your unrepentant practice of that sin, you will have proved that you were never a Christian to begin with. And yes, you'll end up in hell. Not because you cease to be a Christian, but because you never were one. Likewise, why? what reason is there that we should avoid being the cause of spiritual harm to another Christian? Well, a couple of reasons that are given in the text. One is because, first of all, because of the Father's great concern and love for and care for each and every one of his little spiritual children. A concern and care and love which he demonstrates, first of all, in verse 10, by his assignment of angels to watch over the people of God and care for. And those angels uh, have access to God himself in heaven, and they come down and they care for the people of God, Every uh, all of us. And this isn't an argument, by the way, for guardian angels. That's not the point I'm making here. But angels do walk amongst us, just like demons do as well. But angels do. Uh, ministering spirits that minister to the church. And God sent them for our, because He loves us and He cares for us and He's worried, not worried, that's the wrong word. Uh, he doesn't want us to fall into uh, sinful traps and so He sends the angels to assist His people. That's one evidence of the Father's great concern and care for His spiritual children. And the second is found in this parable that comes at the end of our text. That is the parable of the straying sheep. I'll read it again to you. He says there in verse 12, What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go to search for the one that is straying? And if it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that have not gone astray. Thus it will not, thus it is not, rather, the will of your Father who is in heaven, that one of these little ones perish. And see, by causing another uh, believer uh, to stumble spiritually, our, our lives and our sinful behavior that is enticing this other Christian is tending toward their spiritual destruction. And God cares deeply about every one of his children, evident, as evidenced from the fact that he aggressively goes out, if you will, and looks for them, if I could put it that way, uh, if and when they go astray, like the sheep described in the parable. 
Likewise, like our Father in heaven, those of us who are part of his family and know ourselves to be such, ought to share our Father's pastoral concern and love and care for his children. We should share in that same priority that God has, that same concern and love that God has, especially for the weakest and most spiritually vulnerable among us. And express that care and that love and that concern by doing our utmost not to be a source of spiritual harm to him or her. So that's one reason why you and I need to avoid causing others spiritual harm. And the other is found in verses 6 and 7. He says, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. Here Jesus is saying essentially or alluding to the same um, fate, destiny, better word, uh, that would come to us if we don't cease to uh, or to fight against um, potential causes of stumbling in our own lives, which is, we'll end up in hell. And he's saying the same thing applies to other people. That woe is woe because of your fate. Woe because of your destiny, rather. It'd be better for you to... Um, he's saying those... If you, if you end up tripping up a younger... Uh, somebody else in the faith, uh, particularly a younger believer, but any believer, a true child of God, to that person's spiritual detriment, you will incur the kind of judgment that by comparison would make your quick drowning seem merciful. Still a reference to the same outcome. The horrifying uh, situation of incurring the Father's judicial wrath. Excuse me, the judges. He won't, he won't be your Father's. The judges' spiritual wrath and judicial wrath. This is serious stuff. Being a cause of stumbling to ourselves or another is not an unpardonable sin if it is repented of. Perhaps you've been a source of spiritual stumbling to somebody that you know. Perhaps your behavior has wounded another of Christ's little children. Perhaps it's one of your siblings. Perhaps it's one of your friends. Perhaps it's one of your children. And you have wounded somebody. You have led them into sin by your own behavior. It's a terrible thing. I've done it. You've done it probably, if you've lived long enough as a Christian. It is a terrible sin. And if unrepented of, it will land you in hell. It will prove that you were never a Christian to begin with. But if you repent of it, if you have already repented of it and don't want to do it again to somebody else, 
you are absolutely forgiven by Christ, by God through Christ. But the key is, are you taking it seriously, this danger of hurting yourself, yourself of hurting others by your own sinful and selfish ways? Are you taking that seriously and are you fighting? Only God can give you the grace to make progress in that fight. You've got to seek him for it. And he will give you. Remember, the battle is the Lord's, ultimately. He will give you the strength to battle the enemies within as well as the enemies without. But you must look to him, as Israel of old did in Jehoshaphat's day. If you're here today and you have not uh, understood that uh, you deserve to go to hell. Every last one of us does, and you do too. You, you have rebelled against God almost countless occasions. They probably are countable, but the number is so high, it's ridiculous. God knows that number, by the way. If you've done that, I mean, if, you're, if, you're not, um, if you don't under, haven't understood that you are a sinner who is and a rebel against God and are deserving of hell, I'm telling you that's the case right now. You are. You deserve to go to hell. I, as much if not more so than you do, but you deserve that. And you will get that destiny if you do not go to the only mediator that God has provided to cover your sins from his sight so that in the day of judgment he doesn't say, depart from me, I never knew you, but well done, good and faithful servant, come in to your rest. The only way you will get into heaven is if you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus and if your sins have been paid for by the blood of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus' life. And that will only be the case if you are trusting in him alone to reconcile you to God. You can't be trusting in Jesus plus anything or you don't have Jesus. Don't trust in your baptism. Don't trust in your upstanding status in the community. Don't trust in the fact that you're a Boy Scout leader or, or whatever, or volunteer down at the old folks' home. It's nothing. It means nothing to God if you're not in Jesus. Now, once you're in Jesus, then it means something. But it's not going to in any way contribute to making you right with God. Don't trust in yourself. Trust in Jesus, and you will be saved now if you trust in him now and have not done so before now. Praise the Lord for it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the truths that we have learned herein. And we ask, Lord, that you would forgive us, those of us who are believers, who have been poor examples to others and whose poor examples have caused others to sin against you and to bring spiritual harm to themselves by their behavior. And we have been at fault. Would you please forgive us for that? For Christ's sake. And Lord, if there is anyone here today that has not laid hold of you, that you've not given the gift of faith to heretofore, would you please show such a, a one that he desperately needs you? and given the faith to cling to you 
as his only hope. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Receive now God's blessing. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Amen.